Well, good morning again. I uh, encourage you to find a, a soft, comfy chair. Prop your feet up on the back of the chair in front of you. I am Jason Bobo. I'm actually an assistant pastor for the next three or four weeks. There, there, there should be a vote on me as associate pastor at Christ Pres, one of your churches down towards the uh, uh, Tulsa. That's what we call it now. And there's a, there's a line set at 10 on the vote, and there's a lot of over-under betting going on in the office. Um, but I love Blake. I get to come up here maybe two or three times a year and love when I get to spend time with you. So if you want to uh, find either in your worship guide or in your copy of Scripture, John chapter 14, Anna is going to read verses 15 through 31 for us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the, my Father, and you in me, and I in him. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he, is, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that it would, when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's an amazing passage of scripture. It really is. And as confusing as it is, I encourage you to go back um, the rest of this week and, and this year and to dig into that passage again and again and again. There is so much to be mined there that is so valuable for us. Um, so I am teaching, our, our region of churches here in Tulsa does a, a thing called LAMP. It's uh, like a lay person seminary thing and they're so needy for teachers they grabbed me and in two weeks I'll be starting a six-week um, lecture series on the Holy Spirit and so I've been reading and praying and having my own heart broken regularly in study and preparation for this and so when Blake asked if I would come and pray I thought I would be a little lazy and kill two birds with one stone and give you some of what the Lord has been giving me in my studies. And one of the fun 
things that I do at the office. Like I'm a frustrating guy. I'm like a pebble in your shoe, but I'm also a friendly guy. So it's kind of like I'm a friendly pebble who frustrates you. Is um, at the office at Christ Pres. I'm famous for going into someone's office and singing a couple bars of a song, just putting a little earworm in, and that person will, that song will haunt them throughout the day. This has happened to you, right? With, say, Gilligan's Island theme song, or something from Taylor Swift. She seems to be particularly gifted at songs that weasel their way into your noodle. So, with all apologies, uh, both to those of you who were alive in 1988 and know who Tina Turner is, the title of today's sermon is What's Love Got to Do, Got to Do With It? And that's going to haunt you, and you're going to hate me later, but you're also going to smile in your hatred, and I'll take it. That's about as good as I can hope for. But it's a good couple questions stacked on top of each other, too, as we look into John 14, this passage about the Holy Spirit and love and obedience and following God and following Christ in the power of the Spirit. So what's love got to do? And what's love got to do with the whole of this passage? So those are not just annoying questions that will bother you the rest of the day, but they are to guide us as we go through this, and hopefully they'll help you make sense of what the Spirit's job is as He comes to us. So would you pray with me, and then we'll um, dive into this, and we'll get through it just as quick as we can. Lord Jesus, there are many things that keep us like Martha, that keep us anxious and troubled, but only one thing is needful for us right this minute. To sit like Mary at your feet and to find our lives in your word. And so would you give us that grace in abundance this morning. Let us be so enthralled as you manifest yourself to us through your word made clear in the spirit that our hearts are set at peace in your good news and that we long to delight in your law. For us, you've chosen the good portion, and so let that mercy fill us and receive the thanks and praise of your people, your blood-bought children. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we ask, amen. So we've got to, I think, as a church, based on some of what Blake opened the service with about who we are now as a culture, as a, as a people with a particular worldview, we've got to refigure how to argue compellingly for Christ's beauty and Christ's wonder in this very varied marketplace of ideas and competing structures for how to live. And it's an overcrowded market. So I think at the, at the outset of this passage where Christ starts and says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I know what you want to do with that. And so I want to clear the playing field a little bit by telling you um, in 2013, an author, um, an essayist, a um, person who writes for a living, little um, blog posts and things that people pass around. His name's Rod Dreher, um, wrote an article in 2013 entitled Sex After Christianity. 
And that essay, you can still find it online. I double-checked. It's really good to read and helpful. That's not where we're going today, but what he does in that is where we're going today. He, it, the issue is gay marriage in his article and its relationship to the continuing decline of Western Christianity. And whatever your view of that highly charged issue, the point that Mr. Dreher makes is helpful for our consideration. He claims in his piece that the argument is not a moralistic fight. It's a cosmological fight. And see, the church has a long history of arguing a standard of right and wrong, of good and evil, of moral and immoral. And the way we have typically argued in our past is to just say, hey, can't you see that what you're doing is wrong? Stop it. And that's our argument, right? Stop it. There's a great um, Bob Newhart thing. If you've never seen Bob Newhart, anybody, somebody has seen Bob Newhart, um, where a woman comes to him for counseling and he says, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to save you a bunch of time and money. It's 20 bucks and it'll fix you. Stop it. Whatever your problem is, stop it. That's the way the church has lived in the world. We've looked at what's wrong or ugly or not good. And we've said, that's not good. Stop it. Well, I think we can do much better than that. In today's increasingly secular society, any sort of simple finger wagging and stop it by us, no matter how kindly we might utter it, is a bad joke that gets ignored because it's nothing more than the same dried out, worn out, empty moralism that we've perpetuated for centuries now. And so if all you take away from the message this morning is another proof text in John 14, 15, you're adding then to the noise of moralism. If we read this beautiful passage and, and leave the, the thrust of it as love Jesus and do what he says, we've missed the strength of what's been given. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Because John 14, 15 through 31 is not a moralistic argument. It's a cosmological argument. And that is, there's a presentation of grace here that grows out of the design of a good God and a purposefully created cosmos. This is how the triune God interacts with his creation, with himself. And it's how creation should then reflect him. And that's a compelling way of presenting gospel beauty and truth is look at how Jesus loves his father. Look at how Jesus loves his children. He gives of his spirit to them and now go and do likewise. Now that's beautiful. That's far more powerful then stop it. And so in the next few minutes, let's just wipe moralism and immoralism aside and peek into the mysteries of God and the way he moves in creation. And once we find ourselves staring into God's existence and seeing the way that he lives and moves as himself, and we find ourselves mirroring what we see displayed in the Trinity then we'll have a safe starting point and an idea of where we're, we're headed. So if our arguments begin inside of God and then resonate outward from his internal relationship, his design, 
overflowing into our souls, spilling into our relationships, pouring into our culture, reshaping our society, then we've done not only what Rod Dreher, brilliant as he may be, suggests, but we've done what Christ himself has done. We've done what Christ commands us to do. And let me tell you why that distinction matters. Maybe you think I'm making hay about something that's not that important, but I promise you this. If you go home today, this year in 2016, and you begin to talk to your spouse or raise your kids or engage your gay atheist neighbors with only John 14, 15, then you have all the necessary building blocks of unbelief. So here's what I want you to do if you are a spiritual masochist and you want to bring that pain and ruin into your life. You just get into an argument with your spouse and then you say, I love Jesus. And if you love Jesus and you love me, then you're going to do what we say, right? Raise your kids that way for just a few years. If that's your go-to, if you love me and I love Jesus, then you'll do what we say. If that's it, then you are absolutely pushing your lover further and further away. Parents, if that's your argument to get your children to mind, you're paving the sidewalk on which they'll walk away from you. Neighbor, if you ignore could-be friends because they're more immoral than you're comfortable with, you've given them every reason to disbelieve a Jesus that the Bible doesn't present. It's impossible for us to moan about a societal ill loud enough or to spank a lying child often enough to generate a relationship of grace. And we can't argue from outside of God and then expect heart change. And we shouldn't do that because God himself doesn't do that. And so instead of threatening or complaining, Jesus promises personal help. He promises personal help in the impossible mission of the Spirit. So look again at the first part of the passage, 15 through 21. There may be no more simple example in Scripture of how we relate to God and how we live in His world. Everything in this passage has its beginning inside of God. In other words, it's only because of Jesus' perfect relationship with the Father. It's only because of the indwelling spirit of truth. It's only because of his kept promises to us, to adopt us, to bring us into kingdom life with him, in himself. It's only because of all of that that we can truly now love him and joyfully now obey him. And there are two common mistakes as it pertains to love and obedience. I'm sure if you are here and you are a Christian, I'm sure you, in your history, you either have been one of these things or, or maybe you don't realize it, that you were one of those things or you're headed to one of those things. And so people tend to um, live in this dichotomy. And I don't think it's good. I don't want to point these out and then have you find a middle ground. I don't think that's healthy at all. But so the two common mistakes as it pertains 
to love and obedience. There's a group that elevates love to the detriment of obedience. And then there's the group that does the opposite or the inverse that just says following orders is what matters and emotional connection is meaningless. So it's either one or the other. There's either strong sentimentality and nothing more than warm fuzzies, or there's the rigid expectation of a graceless drill sergeant barking out the next order, right? You can see this. You know this in the world, right? You see these things. Probably even in many of the churches in Owasso and in Tulsa and in areas you're familiar with, churches tend to take on this personality disorder. And I hope that you can understand that neither of those options is at all related to Jesus. And neither of those reactions should at all be what the church does in shining him forth. So God is neither an infatuated boyfriend, nor is he a cruel taskmaster. Because of who he is and because of how he comes to us, we should image him to the world, not as lazy lovers and not as heartless robots. But we image him forth as newfound children that have been gathered in from the slums to live in the palace. And the story of God at work in the gospel is that the least worthy have been given the highest honor. That we had nothing in ourselves, but the king has in grace called us his sons and daughters. And he's given us the world. And so if you're a Christian, that's our story. And if that's our story, we should hear Jesus's call to obedience as an easy yoke and a light burden. It is a simple exchange to give up our life for Christ's life, but it's not easy. The Christian life is actually in every way an impossibility, and the Lord knows it. So the, the idea of Okay, you're a sinner and incapable of righteousness, but if you love me and do what I command, then I'll love you reciprocally. That's not good news. Nothing about that idea, that mentality is good news. That's damning news. That's heartbreaking news because it says I am hopeless. And so that's not what Jesus says. The goal is unattainable. Without a full measure of strength and protection and guidance from the same God who has called us to this task. And so Jesus gives the spirit to accomplish all that Jesus calls us to do. And that's amazing love in action. Loving Jesus is what's important, not the commandments. We can lovelessly obey any amount of directions, but the spirit of life and of love, the spirit of Christ cannot dwell in us without causing us to love and follow Christ. If you love Jesus, you'll do what he commands because the spirit in you that causes you to love Christ causes you to walk after him in joy. But a lot of people can play Christianity with no life from the Spirit. And they grow to hate this Savior who's never pleased with them. They grow to despise the God who's always looking down his nose at them. God wants your love. And through your love, obedience comes joyfully. That's what the Spirit gives. 
And the obvious question in the passage, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, which ones, right? The big 10, those seem important. The Decalogue, the ones that we can't put outside of courthouses, those are the ones we're supposed to keep. Those are all encompassingly important. Or is it the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That, like, that's pretty hard to beat. If we can do that one, I think we're going to be fine. Maybe it's the famous verse from Micah from when churches take up alms, Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? I, we could aim at that and I think not do too awful bad. There are many places to turn and consider God's commandments for us to keep in Christ. But I'll say this, in light of the passage we have before us today and where it sits in the upper room discourse of John 13 through John 17, there are two likely options, both of them found in the preceding chapter. After Jesus, the Son of God from on high, stripped naked and wrapped a tiny little threadbare washcloth around his waist... He scrubbed the feet of his arrogant best friends and got the grime from between the toes of his betrayer. And then in John 13, 14 and 15, he says, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. That sounds like a command. It's unimpressive, sacrificial, dirty, but necessary service that's supremely impossible for self-important people to value. But it wasn't impossible for Christ because the spirit of life dwelt within him. And that command is followed by an even greater call to love each other in the same way. In verse 34, of chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. If that doesn't leave you a little hopeless, apart from the presence of the Spirit, you've read it wrong. The same way that Jesus loved you while you were yet a sinner and far from him, while you couldn't care one blip about what he had for you in life, while you were running in the opposite direction, Jesus comes to you, sets aside everything and says, you are to be my child. What will it take for you to know that I love you? And that's the way that we are to love one another. These are the nearest commands to Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. And they fit. They fit if for no other reason than you know as well as I do how hopeless that task would be apart from something from God dwelling in you and dwelling in me. Right? That God would look at us and say, strip down and share in the dirt and grime of your neighbor, even the people who betray you. 
Okay, I want you to go after the people who do not care one iota about you, and I want you to love them sacrificially. Can you do that without the Spirit? I can't. I paid a lot of money in seminary to figure out how to do that without the Spirit. And at some point, God met me in my studies and said, you're a moron. Would you just... Would you just sit here and worship me and stop trying to master me? Would you be mastered by me and learn how to love the way I love? And it wasn't, I didn't get saved while I was in seminary. I didn't get a second blessing, but I tasted grace for the first time. And I don't intend to let that go. There are benefits that come from the grace of the Spirit. Our only hope of faithfulness towards God's commandments is this precious treasure of the Spirit. And with the Spirit come these benefits. You can go through and find them. I'm just going to highlight them, but you'll see them ripple outwards. I have four. I'm sure there's a million more. Community. The call to enjoy and obey Jesus is never in a vacuum. And we were never designed to live righteously alone. And neither was God, right? God's love and enjoyment of what's beautiful, good, and true has always been communal. God doesn't exist in isolation. So our love and obedience to Christ is impossible to achieve on our own. We get the spirit of God to enjoy and obey God because that's what the spirit has done for all eternity. He's enjoyed and obeyed God. And so when he comes to dwell in you, that's what you do. Despite the intent of social media, people are more isolated and disconnected than ever before. The hope that might have been to reconnect with old friends. Instead, now the stats show that we've become more narcissistic and depressed as we've grown shallower and compared what I really know about me to what my beautiful ex-girlfriend shows me and her kids who look like they behave. <clears throat> Fill in your own blanks. Our culture is wilting for lack of community. Now, isolation and depression is killing us. Here's some stats from um, another little essay called Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? In the late 1940s, the U.S. was home to 2,500 clinical psychologists, 30,000 social workers, and fewer than 500 marriage and family therapists. Now, as of 2010, the country had 77,000 clinical psychologists, 192,000 clinical social workers, 400,000 non-clinical social workers, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, 105,000 mental health counselors, 220,000 substance abuse counselors, 17,000 nurse psychotherapists, and 30,000 life coaches. The majority of patients in therapy do not want a psychiatric diagnosis. This rift of psychic servants is helping us through what used to be called regular problems, but we've outsourced the work of everyday caring. Now I have my own personal history of people that I know in my own life who need clinical assistance, right? I have family members who take medicine to stay healthy and well. And so if you're one of the millions of Americans who need and depend on regular counseling or medita uh, medication, I don't 
want you to think that I'm discrediting your problems. That's not the case. But I hope that you can grasp that the community of the church was given to be the world's best option for personal confession, for connection, for wisdom, repentance, and care. And so Trinity ought to be a place where the presence of God, the communal presence of God is palpable. Because the truth is Facebook is not the problem. Loneliness is. And so going to a party or getting into a crowd if you're lonely is not the solution. The Spirit of God is. In the Spirit, we're brought into the active and eternal communion with God and His people. As John opens, this writer opens his first epistle later in the New Testament. Community and fellowship with God is the fuel of his evangelism. What we know, what we have seen, what we've handled and tasted. Won't you come into this with us? Here's our community. People out there and people in here are dying for community. And so Jesus gives the spirit. And the community that he's building is a family. If we had to trust Jesus in our own strength, in our own depression or frustration or fear, we would feel hopeless. We would feel alone again. When we try to live out his commandments without his blessing and strength, it is impossible. You will convince yourself if that's the case that God is dissatisfied with you and that he's left you alone. But in the spirit, we're adopted. We now become the children of promise, not just a community, not simply a gathering of strangers with common interests. We become the family of God. And the helper that Jesus gives is the grace that binds us together in the Christian life as the family of God. And we are to be the most reliant and dependent people the world has ever seen. The church can be honest now about our sins and our struggles and not shocked by each other's failures. We know each other honestly and still love each other deeply, just as Jesus does. He's making us alive with himself as a family, and he is at home with us. That's number three. In the spirit, we can be at home wherever we go. God's at home and perfectly at peace in all of his creation. The Lord of the universe is completely comfortable here. He doesn't feel any pressure to be respected or liked by the power brokers of society. And so think back through the gospel accounts of Christ's life and his ministry. Who was it that ran to Jesus? He was always surrounded by people from all walks of life, important Pharisees to insignificant prostitutes, from idiot disciples to ignorant Samaritans. Jesus was completely at home and totally unfazed by people's perception of him. Do you see what that means? Jesus has never run from any sinner. He's never pushed someone away in disgust, and you won't be the first. The gift of the Spirit is Jesus' welcome embrace. The shock, as we read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the shock of those is the reality that the only place desperate sinners feel at home is in the presence of the Savior. The wrongest people are always the quickest and closest to Jesus. 
At home with that God, we're not afraid of each other or ashamed of our sin. And that's the spirit at work within us. We come confessing and being pardoned. We don't live timid and fearful lives. He makes us alive with himself and the Father. Wherever we go, we dwell with God as a family at home. And lastly, he says, peace, that beautiful, my peace I give to you, not like the world gives. Shalom, peace. The Spirit gives shalom. He gives clarity, peace, and joy. In his mind, those are all interconnected to this idea of shalom. Jesus promises that the Spirit poured out will bring his word to life in his church. And therefore, we rejoice in his ascension. He assumes in verses 25 through 28 that we wouldn't understand Jesus or his scripture without his spirit, but we would remain confused and cloudy. He assumes that we would have no peace or security unless he goes to the Father and sends us the spirit. And he, he assumes that we would have no joy in his going away, but would selfishly worry. And Jesus says we're to be happy that he's going away. And the peace that the world gives is a disengaged peace. It says protect and provide for yourselves. Relax and enjoy the fruit of your labor. And that's nothing like Jesus' peace. The closest commandments of this passage remember that we love and serve each other like Jesus loves and serves us. Jesus' peace left heaven. Jesus' peace sought up torn lives. Jesus' peace overturned corrupt governments. And that's the same way we are to love and serve the world and extend his peace. And without the spirit, it'd be impossible for us to do this. It would be a hopeless and joyless set of tasks. And so when Jesus says, I'm going away, he's pointing to the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. And when he says, I'll come to you, our minds jump forward to some idea of a second coming, to a parousia. We think of that time. I'll come to you sometime out there. But that doesn't fit in the natural flow of this passage. Jesus says, I'll come to you by coming to you in the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is Jesus living in us and working his peace out of us. And so when you see wrong in the world and you long to see it undone, that's the work of the Spirit. When you reflect Jesus and happily participate in putting evil or racism or hatred or the wrongs of our society, when you have a part in putting those to death and seeing life, new life, take root. That's the spirit at work giving shalom. And that's what God has in the gifts of the spirit for us, community, family, home, and shalom. Those were lost by our first parents in the garden, and they are returned in the work of the spirit. After Genesis 3.15, the rest of the Old Testament is a footnote about humanity's attempt to get back home. They're always trying to get back to the garden in the Old Testament. 
And they were always met with disappointment because they lacked either love or obedience. They were either Pharisees or frat boys. They were either enamored with the law instead of the lawgiver or presumptive on God's permission with no regard to his expectation. The story of the Old Testament is a story of a nation longing for community, family, home, and shalom. But all they could craft for themselves were cheap and fleeting imitations of the original. Their history was filled with war, with distortion, with exile and confusion about how to think and live. So it sounds surprisingly like where we live now. And right in the middle of their confusion, and ours, their violence and ours, their greed and ours, Jesus calls out and he says, love me and keep my commandments. And here's the spirit you need to do it. And that's where we see Jesus, how he makes himself seen in us. The spirit of truth alive and active in the church is the flesh and blood of his, of the savior continuing to minister and bring his kingdom to bear in the world. The life of Jesus at work in us now is his spirit. And we look as abnormal and distinct as Jesus did in his own time when we look like him. The world won't see him until they receive him, but we do. Jesus' command is not simply a matter of morals, but a matter of relationship. And so look again at the bookends of the passage. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then as he ends it, he says, the world knows I love my father because I do what he says. I keep his commandments. And the strength of the gospel for us this morning is that Jesus is doing everything that he asks us to do. Jesus is doing everything in us that he commands us to do by the work of his spirit. And all the love and obedience that we can muster is the work of his spirit alive in us. So what's love got to do? Love has to obey. What does love have to do with it? Love has everything to do with obedience because obedience is God's love active and alive in us. The Holy Spirit of God that will glorify and enjoy him forever with the Trinity is the same Holy Spirit that works his love and obedience in and among us this morning. In the love and in the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, give us all that you promise us in the Spirit that we might live as our Savior, and that we might glorify and enjoy the Father forever, and this will be enough for us. Be alive in your bride and your children. Work faith in us and through us that we might love you and follow you all our days. We ask this as your children in hope and trust in you alone. Amen.